yeah, I guess maybe we can go ahead and start, and um, I can just sort of summarize the story. Um, it was, I guess, a lot of reading, so to do in a short amount of time. But um, yeah, I think it's with someone like Flannery O'Connor, I sort of wanted to read one of the stories because talking about her work in the abstract, in terms of ideas, I think misses a lot of what makes it so interesting. I felt that she was a particularly good choice for this conference just because um, a lot of times we hear about these um, messages um, from the Bible, from human experience, from you know, of God's grace and of the risk that that involves. And I think that literature, to me, is a really interesting bridge where we can see that happening in a fictional setting, but still in real life, um, and see where some of these themes touch down. One point of RJ's that I found really interesting in the last talk was with the rich young ruler, he said that a lot of churches interpret that as meaning, you know, oh, we don't have to give up everything, but just give up whatever is most important to you. And I guess one kind of theological label for that would be casuistry, the idea that we can bring God's law down to a point where it's manageable, to where we can meet its expectations. So with the other part of the Sermon on the Mount that RJ quoted, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's something that you sometimes hear interpreted as, well, you don't have to be perfect, but you just have to be trying your hardest, doing your best. And I would never in a million years be able to convince myself that I'm a perfect person, and most people wouldn't be able to. But it's a little easier to convince ourselves that we're doing our best. So. I think that sometimes you see God's law um, mitigated to the point where it seems easy for, or at least doable for us to follow it. Um, and anyway, we all sort of select, I think, different portions of God's law that will be the ones that we personally feel like we can fulfill. Um, and in this story, a good man is a hard is hard to find. You see it in the grandmother, the sort of part of life's demands that she feels like she can achieve is being a lady, you know? There's a line, um, as the family, I guess as a summary, the family is driving out to Florida, and the grandmother wants to go to East Tennessee because that's where she grew up, and she had all of these kind of highfalutin experiences there on old houses and plantations and sort of mingling with all of the other ladies and gentlemen. And she wants to relive those days because, as I think is clear from a pretty early point in the story, she's out of touch with her family. And the sort of one thing that she thinks she has going for her is she's a lady. So um, anyway, so the family is driving they stop at a diner, which is sort of an interesting thing. It interrupts the flow of the story, and maybe one interesting question there is what the diner scene accomplishes. But they stop at a diner, and then they get back in the car and continue driving, and the grandmother 
sees um, a road which she thinks leads to one of these plantations where she was courted and took walks with suitors as a kid. And she wants to show the rest of the family how important she is, this sort of grandiose past which she believes she had and in which a lot of her identity rests. And um, she has this terrible thought that the plantation is not in Georgia but is in fact in Tennessee. And she jumps up because she has this reaction. The cat, which is sitting on her knees, is startled and jumps on the driver's shoulder, her son Bailey, and the car veers off the road and crashes. And then this um, killer escaped from jail named the Misfit comes and meets them there and um, executes her husband, her children, her daughter-in-law, and finally the grandmother herself. But I think with the idea of casuistry and picking a law that gives you a firm identity, makes you feel like you're in control, um, for her it's being a lady. She says she dresses up and puts her hat on so that if they get in a car crash and they all die on the side of the road, at least um, everyone can know that she's a lady. Um, there's some in the handouts, there are exclamation points by certain lines and those are places where, um, if you hear Flannery O'Connor read the story, places where the audience laughed. I think it can be, sometimes I lose track of the fact that this is comedy too. Um, so it was helpful for me to annotate those places. And the thing about being dead but being recognizable as a lady, you know, even in death, I will carry this with me and I will have this secure, fixed identity which they can't take away from me. And that was something, you know, that the audience found hilarious. There was a lot of laughter on that one because um, it's just such a ridiculous and out-of-touch sentiment on the grandmother's part. But to talk a little bit in general about Flannery O'Connor's work, I think one sort of safe generalization to make about it would be that almost all of her stories are about the death of the old Adam. Um, for those of you who heard Aaron Zimmerman speak this morning, he was talking about this world of control. Um, and in the New Testament in St. Paul, there's a distinction made between the old Adam and the new Adam, or the old man and the new man. And this world of control is the world of the old Adam, the part of us that is trying to say, you know, well, I may not be in touch with my kids, but at least um an important person, at least I'm a lady, or at least I um, have a job at Morgan Stanley, or at least I am physically fit and eat only organic foods. All of these things that are these manageable goals, um, each of her characters has one of these idols in kind of more traditional terminology, and they are all led to the death of the person they thought they were. It's the death of the old Adam, and often, as in this story, um, it ends in physical death, too. Um, so, anyway, the a lot of this, too, has to do with sight. These characters are all people who see themselves um, as a lady, in the grandmother's case, and they have to be led to see that that is inadequate, that their identity will not be able to cope with the 
um, world that they see around them, either morally or with regard to safety. When the grandmother is approached by the serial killer, she's talking to him and saying, you know, you wouldn't shoot a lady, would you? <laughs> she thinks that'll keep her safe. Um, so we see ourselves as these different identities which we use to sort of control the world around us and convince ourselves that everything is all right. And for Flannery O'Connor, um, the task is sort of to actually see ourselves as we are, which is as frail human beings. And often this involves the stripping away of our illusions about ourselves. One theologian I like, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, says that the Holy Spirit works through consolation and desolation. The Holy Spirit kills the old Adam. It overwhelms, um, it overwhelms our attempts to sort of deal with the world and keep everything under control, and things fall apart. And that's the desolation. And then after that happens, once we realize that our own strength is not enough, then comes the consolation and we're raised up again in grace and when we see our frailty we can see ourselves um, finally as forgiven as well as those that are weak and yet loved, sinners and yet justified. But seeing ourselves as we are is a very unpleasant thing. I would much rather think of myself as someone who, um, you know, writes on this cool blog and you know thinks in a certain way about Christianity and is from you know Macon Georgia I think that's really cool and I would rather see myself through all of these categories of things that I think are cool and interesting and good um, rather than through the lens of weakness and we're often so averse to seeing the weakness in ourselves that it takes drastic measures to make us see clearly Flannery O'Connor once said, to the deaf you shout, and to the almost blind you make big dramatic gestures, because that's what it takes to get our attention and break through to us. Um, so she was, one advantage that she had, she had a few advantages in looking at this brokenness honestly, and one of them was being a devout Catholic. She read a ton of um, Christian stuff. She was steeped in the Bible, steeped in all of these kind of fancy theology books, steeped in literature. And then the other two advantages were one was living in the South. Um, in an essay on the regional writer, she said that when the South um, lost the Civil War, which to us is very remote, to them was more immediate. She was writing in, I guess, the 1940s and 50s. Um, mostly, for, well, yeah, no, 50s too, and 60s, I guess, a little bit. But um, she said that when this civilization of the South um, was defeated in the war, she said, we have had our fall, we have gone into the modern world with an inburnt knowledge of human limitation an inbert knowledge of human limitation. Um, it was a region that felt defeated and importantly defeated not just by outside circumstances but also by its own sin. So 
that region had a very um, strong sense of human limitation and human brokenness. Um, the second reason was a little bit more personal. She was diagnosed with lupus at the age of either 25 or 26. Um, and her dad had died of that, and she had seen her dad die of that. So from the age of, I think it was 26 onward, she knew that her life was following the tra a trajectory toward death. And lupus is a um, debilitating disease. Um, it affects muscular system. Um, it affects nervous system. So, you know, she was using crutches, and with every step she took, she would have been reminded of her mortality. And we see this preoccupation with death and limitation very clearly in her stories. Um, so, yeah, that is about all that I have for introductory stuff on Flannery O'Connor. But to get into the story itself, I'm just curious, how much of it were y'all able to read? I know we didn't have enough time because the schedules kind of about half. Okay. Um, so to just kind of walk through it, the grandmother is living in this fantasy world, as I mentioned earlier, and she's just all obsessed with these things that she thinks were her glory days, and her family couldn't care less about it. Um, for the other characters, the children are pretty clearly bratty. They get into the diner with uh, Red Sammy, and Red Sammy's wife thinks the girl, June Star, is cute and says, how would you like to come be my little girl? And June Star says, I don't want any of that. This diner is gross. You know, get me out of here. So the kids are very bratty, and her son Bailey seems just like a sort of, and maybe y'all read him differently. Um, we'll discuss in a little bit. But her son Bailey is this just sort of, frustrated, um, sort of pessimistic man who just seems like he has a hard time coping with the world. And her daughter-in-law, the wife, is a very weak character. When her kids ask her to put a nickel in the jukebox, she obliges. When they have an accident, she's just sort of in a daze. And you see her sort of deferring to Bailey and the grandmother and the kids on almost everything. So that's an interesting point, her being such a weak character. And I'm not quite sure why this story would have required it, um, except just that um, O'Connor wants to put so much emphasis on the grandmother and on the kids that maybe there's not space for another strong character in there. Um, <clears throat> but they get to the diner. One interesting part in the diner scene, let me find this story real quick. One interesting part in the diner scene, when they get there, there is a monkey that rushes up the tree to get away from the kids when they see, when he sees the kids. It is on my page 140, 141? 141. Yeah, 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 right on the break there. Um, so you see the monkey go back up the tree to get away from them. And then as they're leaving, near the bottom of 142, second to last paragraph, final line, he was busy catching fleas on himself and biting each one carefully between his teeth as if it were a delicacy. So on either side of the diner scene, um, where these kids are acting kind of bratty and 
unnaturally you see the monkey who sort of sees things clearly. It's a way that an animal is, it's a way that human beings are almost below an animal in terms of judgment because the monkey is acting naturally, taking care of himself, fleeing danger, and the family instead is heading straight toward danger and are failing to take care of themselves and each other. And the source of so much of this is the grandmother's illusions. And when they have an accident, and one of them, the children are screaming, we had an accident and are really happy about it, because it's, um, it's just something new and interesting. They, let's see, let's go to 146, when they run into the misfit and... It says he was an older man than the other two. His hair was just beginning to gray and he wore silver rimmed spectacles that gave him a scholarly look. So the idea of the scholarly look, the misfit too, is someone with the spectacles who sees things more clearly than the grandmother does. Um, as he, he's very polite, and when the grandmother says we turned over twice, he corrects her once. We've seen it happen. Try their car and see if it will run. So he immediately, she is exaggerating things to make it seem like they've suffered more than they have. And the misfit corrects her. He is um, in some way in tune with reality in a way that the grandmother is not. So the misfits to henchmen are checking the car to see if it will run, to see if they can steal it, switch cars. Um... And then the grandmother points out, you're the misfit. And she's been dreading the misfit the whole time and speaking about it, like we do with sensational news stories. You know, you open up Yahoo.com's homepage, and it says, you know, a woman in Michigan um, kills her husband. And it's this way to sort of engage evil at a distance, to think about evil but keep it at arm's length. And she's been reading about the misfit, and thinking herself to be such a good woman, she sees evil as something other than herself and is fascinated by it and can't help pointing out when they see him, you're the misfit, I recognize you. But Anna, and that ends up condemning the family to death because they might have gotten away before then, but someone who knows the misfit is here can't be left alive. So the grandmother is dooming them the whole time. But if we look on the middle of 146... Right after we've had an accident, the children screamed. It says, The grandmother had the peculiar feeling that the bespectacled man was someone she knew. His face was as familiar to her as if she had known him all her life, but she could not recall who he was. And this is one great place where Flannery O'Connor is often working with two different levels of meaning, and each is totally plausible. On the one hand, she recognizes him because she's seen his face in the paper, but on the other hand, Flannery goes a little further than that and says, as if she had known him all her life. And this is, in some ways, the specter of evil, the existence of evil in the world, the existence of human sin, which she has a vague feeling of familiarity with because it's there in her, but she's been keeping it at a distance her entire life. Um, so one way in which we could say that this is a story of grace or a story of the death of the old Adam is the grandmother is gradually being ushered toward this confrontation 
with the fact that there's evil in the world. And a little later on 147, the grandmother's telling him he's a good man. She says, uh, this is right in the middle of the page, listen, the grandmother almost screamed. I know you're a good man. You don't look a bit like you have common blood. I know you must come from nice people. So for her, again, good and evil is a thing of just social stratification and how you were raised. And the misfit's reply to us, perfect. He pointed the toe of his shoe into the ground and made a little hole and covered it up again. A little later, he's uh, rifling around on the ground with the butt of his gun, and you see this. I'm not quite sure how it fits in, but you see, a, to me, a pretty clear reference to Jesus uh, drawing stuff in the dirt. Um, and the misfit says, yes, ma'am, the finest people in the world. God never made a finer woman than my mother, and my daddy's heart was pure gold. So evil is arbitrary. Um, and with Flannery O'Connor's sort of theological background, it probably struck her that um, what the misfit is refuting here is Pelagianism, the idea that if we're brought up in the right environment and we have good intentions, we won't sin. Um, there's no such thing as inherited sin. We all have a chance to live sinless lives. And the misfit said, no, I came from the best background in the world, and I still had this bent towards killing people. So one by one, the grandmother's illusions about herself are being stripped. First, she remembers the mansion isn't actually in Georgia, but it's in Tennessee. Second, she is corrected on the car turning over. So one is a memory, the second is about something that actually just happened, more concrete, more present, and then the third is this deep truth that human beings can have all of the advantages in the world, the best parents in the world, and still this thing called sin, which the grandmother has been repressing, can still break forth. So she's being confronted with these things one by one. Um, and then, let me see, there was one more illusion of the grandmothers that I wanted to look at. Oh, here we go. Yeah, 148. A paragraph that starts the grandmother. Um, the misfit asks his henchman to take a couple of the people in the family, um, her son and her grandson, into the woods. They're going to shoot them. And my grandmother calls Bailey boy. She called in a tragic voice, but she found she was looking at the misfit squatting on the ground in front of her. Whoa, wait. Sorry. A little too low. I to go up. Sorry. The grandmother reached up to adjust her hat brim as if she were going into the woods with him, but it came off in her hand. She stood staring at it, and after a second, she let it fall on the ground. So, in some ways, this is the final illusion the grandmother is stripped of. The hat is, was always sort of a way to identify that one was in a certain kind of society, had a certain kind of manners, and this is what the grandmother's clinging to. And she goes to adjust her hat to try to use her sort of manners and her social graces to deal with the situation, and instead it comes off in her hand. She is literally stripped of her identity as a lady, and she looks at it blankly for a second and then just lets it fall on the ground. 
she realizes that she's in a situation where her ability to cope with the world as a lady has been totally overwhelmed. And instead of putting the hat back on her head, she just lets it fall because she's realized that it's not going to be able to help her. Um, and the misfit in here makes some interesting kind of philosophical statements, which has led some, which has led some to call this story a parable. He was someone who was always curious about the world, could never quite accept things like most people. Um, and he had to find out what was going on in the world and had to figure out the truth. And he said, says a little bit later, um, where was it? Anyway, he says a little later that if he is interested in Jesus and if Jesus um, really did die and raise from the dead, then everybody should do nothing but that, the law. Um, if this really did happen, this is the meaning of life. But if it didn't happen, he can just go around shooting people for his pleasure. And a couple of other interesting parts. He's talking about his past. This is on 150 near the top and being sent to the penitentiary. And he says, turn to the right, it was a wall. He said, looking up again at the cloudless sky. Um, turn to the left, it was a wall. Um, look up, it was a ceiling. And so he's, when he looks up at the sky, he's almost recalling his jail cell. The world to him is this prison. Um, and there's not a cloud in the sky. There's no presence up there. It's just this um, barren world that he's living in where he can just impose his will on people for his pleasure. And a little later on, just sort of going through this. Um, he said, listen, lady, he says, sorry, bottom, near bottom of 152, about three-fifths of the way down. Listen, lady, he said in a high voice, if I would have been there when Jesus ostensibly rose from the dead, I wouldn't be, I would have known and I wouldn't be like I am now. But the error is the misfit thinks that we believe in Christ or don't believe in Christ from witnessing that moment in history or not witnessing that moment back when it was in history. He doesn't have any conception that you can actually experience Christ in the present and that God is still present and still working until the grandmother immediately after this. Misfit thinks there's no God here. It was only in history. And then the grandmother makes this incredible gesture of grace said his voice seemed about to crack. So he shows his weakness and the grandmother responds with grace. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry and she murmured, why you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She finally identifies with sin as one of her own children. It is part of her family. We are all in the common human lot together. And she reaches out and touches him on the shoulder, actually makes physical contact, physical identification with this image of sin and evil and fear. And the misfit finds that he cannot take this. Um, 
the grace of God to people who want, when we want things under our control, when someone makes a gesture of grace to us that indicates they love us despite our achievements or despite our failures, um, the misfit recoils like from a snake. I want to keep living in my self-contained world. I don't want to be in contact with other human beings. And he repudiates her and repudiates the grace she represents and shoots her three times in the chest. Um, and then the misfit takes his glasses down. Then he put his gun down on the ground and took off his glasses and began to clean them. So his vision is being purified, not only by this grandmother's act of grace, but also perhaps by the first glimmer of regret that he feels in his sin. He will meet God not 2,000 years ago in history where he could have proved or disproved, but he meets God in the concrete action of grace by, grandmother, by the grandmother and perhaps in the first moments of repentance on his shooting spree after getting out of prison. Without his glasses, the misfit's eyes were red-rimmed and pale and defenseless looking. He's no longer the scholar that he was earlier, speculating about God, but instead, um, he's pale and defenseless looking. He's seeing things with his naked eyes as a vulnerable human being. And then his henchman comes up to him and says, uh, she was a talker, wasn't she, Bobby Lee said, sliding down the ditch with the yodel. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. It's a famous line in this. Um, Some fun, Bobby Lee said. Shut up, Bobby Lee, the misfit said. It's no real pleasure in life. So the misfit, I guess, sort of justifies himself or exerts control in the world by shooting people and doing whatever he wants and imposing his will on the world. But once the grandmother shows him something beyond that, something outside of himself and something beyond deserving, all of a sudden he loses the pleasure in shooting people. And the grandmother, through being forced to face sin and forced to identify with it just before she died, um, recognized herself as she was in common with this universal human sin and that produced a gesture of love or charity and the misfit's conclusion is ambiguous but with him cleaning his glasses and him finally having lost pleasure in shooting people and being disaffected with the world um, there is at least hope that he will come around to um, find God again not back when we could have proved it when he was wearing his glasses but now with his naked eyes unscholarly, just seeing it in history and gestures of grace beyond deserving like the grandmothers. So, um, yeah, we have